All right, good morning. Um, glad that you are here this morning and that the sun is shining. It's always happy to see the sun, although I was glad we got some rain this week as well. So the, this morning we're going to be continuing our series in 1 Corinthians, and we're going to find ourselves in chapter 11. And so as you saw from the, the sermon title, if you looked in your handout, one of the things we're going to be talking about this morning is head coverings and communion. And judging from looking out this morning, as I do many Sundays, I don't see any head coverings on the women among us, so I think we've kind of all decided that this passage doesn't really apply to us, right? At least not in the sense that women should be wearing head coverings in worship. Well, the question we need to wrestle with this morning is, well, why? Okay, maybe we've thought that, maybe you've assumed that, but maybe you've read this chapter and gone, well... Okay, I know that doesn't apply, but I don't really know why. And if I know it doesn't, or if I'm a man, I don't know what this has to do with anything. What is Paul getting at? What was the point of this? What, what actually is going on here? Because all Scripture is applicable to us. All of it. Okay, and that includes all of those laws in Leviticus that all of us ignore and pretend, well, it's God's Word, but I don't really want to read that anyway. Okay, even the customs, even the things that maybe we don't follow in the exact same ways, there are spiritual and scriptural principles there that all of us need to follow still, although the way we do that differs. So the way that we apply Scripture may change through the centuries. If the Lord tarries 200, 300 years from now, churches will probably worship a little different than we worship now. I doubt they'll sing quite the same songs, though some of them may endure. But so we, we have to wrestle with what, are, what is the principle here? And what we're going to see this morning is really, or what I, what I think, is that this covering, the head coverings and the communion are really about worship. And so much of this passage and this whole chapter is about what is proper worship. What goes on on Sunday morning when the church gathers together as an assembly? Well, what should it look like and why does that matter? And why does that matter? And so that's what we're going to look at this morning as we kind of work through this passage in 1 Corinthians 11. There's a lot in this passage. I don't have time to cover every single thing that's in here. Um, so there may be some things, if you feel like I skipped over it, just come up and, and ask me. Um, at the end, we can talk about it. Maybe I'll have an answer. Um, but so if you would, if you'd go ahead and stand with me, if you're able, as we just read from God's Word together in 1 Corinthians 11. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything, and you maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. And every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since the same as if her head were shaven." For if a wife will not cover her head, she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut her hair or to shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought to not cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man, and neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. And that is why the wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head, because of the angels. Are you confused yet? Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as a woman was made from man, so man is born of woman, and all things are from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? 
Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it's a disgrace to him? But if a woman has long hair, it's her glory, for her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contingent, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. In the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear there are divisions among you. And I believe in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you be recognized. And when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat or drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? I shall not command you in this. I will not. For I receive from the Lord that which I also deliver to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he also took the cup after the supper and said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. For whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. And that is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judge ourselves truly, we will not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment, but the other things I will give direction when I come. Grass withers and the flower fades, but God's word stands forever. Let's pray. Lord, I just ask that you would come and illuminate your word. Lord, there are passages of scripture that are easier for us to understand, harder for us to apply, and there are some of us that just make, some passages that just make us scratch our heads, like this morning. Lord, I pray for your grace um, with me. I pray for your grace with us. Would you open our ears? Would you open our eyes? Would your Holy Spirit move and make your word make sense in a way that only you can? And we pray this in your holy and precious name. Amen. You can be seated. So point number one, if you're taking notes, is that proper worship is Christ-centered. Proper worship is Christ-centered. So this is really um, the main principle that's going on in these first kind of 16 verses. It's really the whole chapter, but especially these first 16 verses. It's a lot about what is our proper behavior in worship. And what I don't think Paul is trying to do is I don't think he's trying to establish a dress code. Okay, I don't think that's what is going on. He's trying to say, this is the proper thing to wear to church, and don't wear this, and then that, that's it. This is what we're doing. But he's trying to establish that the way we dress and the way we behave and the way we look is significant and as far as it's centered on Christ. And to that end, it matters. But so before we talk about women in head coverings, it's important for us to look at verse 4 because Paul doesn't address women first. He addresses men. And so why would he do that? Verse 4, every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. And that being Christ, because ultimately Christ is the head of all of us. So that's where we're all supposed to be centered on. And he's saying, men who do this are dishonoring Christ. That should make us pause. Okay, well, why? Since, you know, we know this doesn't really apply to us exactly. So what, what was the context then? Why did this matter? 
I joked with Bree before today that, well, since we decided this passage didn't apply anymore, I was going to use my freedom in Christ to preach in my Texas Longhorns hat. But she, you know, because I can cover my head, so that's fine. She told me it's probably a bad idea, and didn't you just talk about, you know, laying down your rights so that you don't offend others? Is that, yeah, good point? Okay. So don't want to be a stumbling block for you, so I have not worn my Texas hat this morning. But so why is Paul saying this? And, and the Jews at this time, too, they had a normal practice of covering their heads when they prayed. So this is different. This is actually changing some of their own traditions slightly. Well, we need to look back and say, well, what's the pro- what was going on in Corinth? What was going on I- at this point in time? And what would happen, so we would see, is that during the pagan ceremonies in all of these temples that are all over the place where they're making all of these sacrifices to idols, what would happen is the men who would be performing these, the priests, before they would begin, would take their toga and lift it up over their head and cover their head. And especially some of those who would do this, the emperor himself would do this. So those people who are really high up in society as they're in their pagan temples doing their pagan rituals would cover their heads. And you would even, you'd see it on coins, the coins of the emperor showing, you know, him in action. It would have him with his head covered. So it was almost becoming a bit of a fashion trend, right? I want to be like the emperor. I want to be like all those rich people. I want to be like the cool kids that I see out there that are doing this. So then this was coming into the church. So then they would want to lift up their togas over their heads and look just like that. And Paul wants them to knock this off. Okay. And he's, he's doing this in primarily because I think what Paul is trying to say is, guys, your worship should not look like what's going on in those pagan temples. Our worship needs to be different. People shouldn't come in and think, oh, yeah, this is just like, you know, the temple to whatever that I was just at. Perfect. So this is just, just another temple, just another thing. I, I get this. This is easy. I can do this. And so a part of what this means for us as well is that our worship should not look like the worship of the world. It needs to be distinct. It needs to be different. It shouldn't be modeled after what the world does. Not because the world has bad ideas, but because when people walk into the room on Sunday morning, they should have an encounter with a living God. They should know that this is not what you are doing the rest of the week. This isn't just like a TED Talk. This isn't just like another concert or, you know, some webinar where you've heard somebody talk or some, uh, you know, one of those people, a self-help guru. It needs to be different. But we can go overboard with this principle can't we? And say, well, now everything needs to be different. We don't do anything that the world does. Okay, other people, the world uses microphones and speakers. So let's cut those out. We don't want to do that. We have a stage because it makes it easier for you to see me. That's too much like, let's get rid of the stage. Maybe let's put our chairs in different ways, do all sorts of stuff, right? So we we can go overboard and go a little crazy doing that. But the principle is, is good for us to ask. Is there comes a point where we need to ask, okay, is what goes on inside these walls on Sunday morning different than what the world does? And is it different enough? Or does it just look like the world? Is there anything different at all? And so that's part of it for for men, at least, why Paul was saying, hey, no, your worship needs to be centered on Christ. It doesn't need to be centered on looking like what the other people are doing in their temples. You need to worry about what you do in mine. And so that's for the men, but also, so what was going on with women in this culture at the time? Well, generally, in the case, most women wore veils or head coverings, not quite like a burqa, but more of like a shawl, just kind of over the back of the head. And especially married women would be doing this just to cover up their hair a little bit. 
And so the only people who wouldn't be wearing a head covering typically would be prostitutes. Um, so prostitutes are not wearing head coverings or those who were very shameful or sexually promiscuous, generally, is what was going on there. But another thing that would be happening here is when you're, if you went to somebody's house, you wouldn't be required to, you know, wear a head covering in your own home because it's your home. So especially the only people who have that really are the wealthy people. So wealthy women wouldn't have to wear a head covering in their home. And if you went to their home and you were a really good friend, then you also wouldn't have to wear a head covering. We're going to come back to that in just a second. Uh, but so normally what's happening is that married people wear head coverings. This isn't just believers, it's just average, this is the culture. This is kind of what everybody does. So to not wear it is weird. To not wear it is really kind of shameful, which is why so much of what he talks about of, well, if you don't want to wear that, then cut your hair. Well, you're not going to do that because that's disgraceful, kind of in six. So he's talking about this is the normal, this is the way the culture looks at this point. But so what's going on inside the church walls is a little different than what's going on outside of them. We just spent all these chapters talking about Christian freedom, right? And so we can disagree, we can do things differently, but we're also set free from the law. And so what's partly, I think, going on is there are some in Corinth who are saying, hey, we've been set free, I don't have to follow what the culture does, and Paul has told us all about how we're all equal, there's no man or woman or Greek or Gentile or slave or free, we're all equal there, so I don't need to wear a head covering, so I'm going to take it off, and we're just gonna, I'm just going to look like everybody else. And so they're doing this, and you see this in verse 5, um, particularly when Paul is saying, well, every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It's easy to skip past something real quick. This is saying that there are women in the church who are praying and prophesying in the assembly on Sunday morning. They are participating in a unique way that no one else is doing in other temples. So this is radical. This is different. Now we can, you know, wonder, well, what, what does prophesying here mean? Is that the same as preaching? Some like to do that. Um, I think many like to do that because they don't like to wrestle with what in the world is prophecy because there's a lot of prophecy that seems to go on, and we don't do that very much anymore. So we just say prophecy equals preaching, and we kind of move on. I don't think we can do that, but at least what I think is going on here is there is some way that women are praying aloud and are speaking aloud in a way that is intelligible about God and about His Word and what it has to say, in some form or fashion. I don't exactly know how or what. I'm still wrestling with that. But what this means is the women are doing this, and so this is, this is radical, right? So they're already, Paul and the Bible is breaking some cultural boundaries. But now he's saying, hey, look, we're going a little too far here. Because what you're doing now, it's not just being Christ-centered. It's, it's actually distracting a little bit from the gospel. So your second kind of blank underneath this point of how our proper worship is Christ-centered is that our, our worship should be distinct from the world, but it shouldn't be unnecessarily offensive. Okay, so our worship should be distinct from the world. It needs to be different, right? So it's got to look different than everything else, but... It shouldn't be unnecessarily offensive. And I put unnecessarily there because there are things about our worship that are offensive. Okay? Saying, hey, everyone here on earth is sinful and deserving of hell and punishment forever and all eternity. That is offensive. And hey, there's nothing you can do to get out of that. That's also offensive. So because the gospel is offensive enough, we don't want to make our own behavior more offensive if we don't need to. And that's what Paul is saying y'all are doing. Here's a more modern version of this. What's happening, or what's happening when you go in is people are walking into the church and seeing women without head coverings and going, Ugh, 
what's going on here? This looks, this looks shady. Did I enter in some kind of weird sexual thing? I don't like what's going on here. This is, this is offensive. Modern view of this, if we all came into this room and those of us who are married just took off our wedding rings and put them in our pockets when we came in, it would make people go, uh, what are you doing? Well, you know, in Christ, there's just there's no distinction. There's no marriage in heaven either, so we're just going to go ahead and take off our wedding rings, kind of remind us of that. Uh, that kind of seems weird. Why? I don't you know, this, it, it's that kind of thing. They're similar. It's the best example of it I could come up with, at least. And so Paul is saying that y'all doing this is making it more difficult for people to hear the gospel. You're putting up another barrier by embracing this. And also, going back, I mentioned rich women, right, wouldn't have to wear a head covering in their home. And at this point, the church often would meet in big homes, usually owned by some of the few in the church who are rich. And so their friends... The friends of the woman who owned the home wouldn't have to wear a head covering. Okay, now what is that doing if you come into the church? And now you see, well, here's those women over there, and they're not wearing head coverings. They're very distinct, different, but, oh, I'm not really her friend, so I'm going to have to sit over here, and I'm going to have to keep my head covering on. Now you're creating divisions, which is what Paul, right after this, starts to hack at them for having divisions, and he's hacked at them before for having all sorts of divisions and factions, and this is just, I think, another reason think kind of both of these are there, but that's a, another reason that Paul is telling them they need to all be just wearing head coverings because they're distracting from the gospel. They're distracting from their unity for what they're there for. And there's this super strange phrase in verse 10 um, where Paul says, you know, that's why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Okay, and especially that last phrase there, because of the angels, um, that's why even as I read it, it was like, are you confused? Because what does that mean, Paul? And what I've discovered, because I've got a bunch of commentaries I've studied and wrestled with this passage, is almost every commentary I had had a different idea of what that phrase, because of the angels, meant. All of them were like, nobody really knows. We're all kind of guessing. Here's my guess. Here's what I think. And all of them had a different opinion. Um, so that's comforting a little bit that there are some things in Scripture that all of us are just going to wrestle with and not fully know, but so you're going to get my opinion now, my interpretation, okay? And you're welcome to disagree with me. You're welcome to come up with something different. Um, that's fine. But what I think is happening here, why, the best thing that I can come up with with why this matters is because Paul is so focused on their worship and their behavior in worship, especially as it comes into communion and the Lord's Supper. I think what he's saying is not that this has something to do with how the angels dress and their hierarchy or whatever. I think it's because... Angels are present in our worship. Okay, that's also offensive and weird, right? We don't like to talk about demons and angels because we don't want to be weird. But, hey, we believe in angels, right? We believe in demons. We believe there's spiritual warfare going on. We believe there's a spiritual realm we can't see where they're acting and moving. And I think at least some of this is, hey, when we come on Sunday morning and we gather and we sing and we are centered on Jesus and Christ, there are angels who are here with us to worship with Him. And so what he is saying is, hey... There are angels showing up in your worship, so you guys should behave rightly, right? If an angel showed up, if I told you, hey, next week, God rang me up and he told me he was going to send a couple angels to come visit our worship for us. Okay, we'd all probably act a little differently, right? We might make sure we got here really early. We might wear a little different clothes maybe than we normally wear. We might make sure I'm going to really read the passage ahead of time this week, or I'm going to say, you know, we would do, we would act differently because they're here. 
right? We would sit up a little straighter because I don't know if he's looking at me or what's going on. And so I, I think that's at least part of what Paul is saying here is that we need to be on our best behavior in worship. And our worship should be centered on Jesus. And now the application of this, I, I think it goes far beyond, well, well, what should women wear on their heads? I, I think it applies to what is everything that we do in our worship, men and women, is we need to, to ask, partly ask ourselves, well, how can we make our, our worship not unnecessarily offensive, which that's easier. I don't think there's things that we're doing that would push people off, at least in the way we dress, because our dress code changes. But he's really just saying, you know, we need to match the culture that we're in. Okay, what is normal, what people expect, don't make it weirder. Okay, if we read this and decided, you know what, we all need to just dress to the, to the nines, and so I'm going to start wearing a suit every Sunday with a tie, and I expect all men to have suits and ties, and women to be dressed in your very best gowns that you have. In fact, ball gowns, because we're just going to go, angels are coming, so we got to be, you know, as fancy as we can get. Okay, then how is a visitor going to feel when they come in and see, well, wow, everyone's wearing ball gowns and suits. Ugh, I'm just going to go back to my car. I don't think I fit in here. Right? I think that's at least part of what's, what's going on here. But that also means that, you know, maybe I shouldn't come up here and preach in pajama pants. Okay, why? Well, is there something wrong with pajama pants? No, but does that fit the culture? Does that fit what everyone else is kind of wearing here? No, that would be offensive, right? So that, I think that's at, at least some of, what's, some of what's going on in this. A good example I can think of is a worship pastor of the church I grew up in. His name was Scott. And he tried very, he was very intentional with what he wore on Sunday. And I, I remember him talking about this because, you know, he's, he's a worship guy and was very, he was really into music before. He wrote his own songs and stuff. So he was kind of in that, in that world. And one of the things he would talk about is that he thought it was just really important as a worship leader to just wear bland, boring clothes to just be boring, to not wear his coolest shirt, to not wear his nicest jeans. And he also thought, you know, I need to make sure I'm just going to keep my beard shorter than I want it to be, even though I'd prefer to grow it out. And he just wanted to do everything he could do so that he could just be invisible as he was up here because he didn't want to distract anybody from Jesus because his focus was, well, we're here to be centered on Jesus. So if I'm wearing my Hawaiian shirt and I've got my, my really big beard and my awesome glasses, people are going to think, wow, Scott looks pretty cool. Or they're going to think, wow, Scott looks dumb. And they're not going to be thinking about Jesus and what we should be doing. And so I think that that's a helpful thing for us, not just how we dress, not just how I dress when I come up here, but to remember for, for all of us that the way that we act and even what we wear is significant. Not because these clothes matter, but because our heart matters. And are, are we coming in on Sunday and are we centered on Jesus and what Jesus wants and what honors Jesus and how we can help each other worship Jesus? Or are we just centered on ourselves? So that's, that's, my, that's my best shot at head coverings. There's plenty in there I didn't tackle, um, but so if you got more questions, come and ask me later. But so let's turn our attention to communion now. And really, I think where the first part with head coverings is kind of about proper behavior, I think communion, a lot of this is about having a proper attitude. And so point number two is that proper worship takes preparation. That proper worship takes preparation. So it's helpful to talk a little bit about what is communion? What does that mean? 
or communion, the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist. There's all sorts of words that we can, we can use to talk about this. And a good definition of, of communion or a way to think about it is that communion is just a way that we remember and we proclaim Christ's death. I'm taking that from verse 26, where as often as we eat this bread and we drink this cup, we are proclaiming the Lord's death. So we remember it, we reflect on it, and then somehow in doing it, we are also preaching it, not just to ourselves, but to the world. And in this passage, what we have here is this sometimes is referred to as the words of institution. And this comes from 23, where Paul is saying, you know, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. And then he goes, goes on. And I wonder, well, why do I, when we've practiced communion, why am I reading this passage? Does it sound familiar? Because it's the one I read every time. It's the one many churches read every time, almost all of them. Some will read different ones every now and then. Well, it's because Paul said, hey, so what Jesus told us to do when we practice communion, so here's what he told me. So let's just say these words. So I think it's helpful to just go with what Jesus said. Um, but so that's why, that's why I read it. That's why we kind of re reflect on it. And in it, what he tells us in, in 24, that we, he breaks the bread, and so he takes it and says, this is my body, which is for you, and do this in remembrance of me. So we eat the bread or whatever our equivalent. Different churches do different things, but we want to get clo closer to bread is better, right? We don't want to do Doritos. That would be further away from bread and distracting and not great. I've seen places that do that. Okay, so that when we do that, we remember Jesus' death. And then when we drink the wine or the grape juice or however close we can get to wine without violating our conscience, right? Then we reflect on the blood of Jesus in 25. So he took the blood or the cup and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this. And as often as you drink it, do this in remembrance of me, which is, you know, it's part of the new covenant. So communion, that, that's part of what it is and what we do. But communion accomplishes a number of things. There's a lot of stuff that happens as we celebrate and remember the Lord's Supper. The first thing is that it helps us remember the gospel. It helps us reflect on it. It's easy to forget the gospel and move on to other stuff, isn't it? That we can get sidetracked, or not sidetracked, but we can study the Bible and we can see other things. We can read other passages. We can hear stories we haven't read before. Or we can even get into theology and we can start reading other books and thinking of other things and going to other places, which are all good and are all helpful. But if we're not careful, we can forget what the whole Bible is about. We can forget to be centered on Christ and we can just get distracted. And so communion helps us because it forces all of us to pause and literally just remember what Jesus did. That the reason we gather this morning is because our Savior came down, died on the cross, broke His body, and blood spilled out of His sides for us so that we could be saved and delivered from our sins. And we need to remember that. We need to remember that a lot. So that's part of what communion does and why He says, do this in remembrance of Me. You need to remember this. This is an important enough thing that you should constantly be reminding yourself of it. And it's a ritual that we undertake, really, to remind us. And it's not just that we remember it intellectually, but it also reminds our bodies of it. That because we are doing something physically, it helps us pay a little bit better attention. Right? As we eat and as we slowly chew up the bread, we can think and reflect on that. And as we drink the wine, as it goes down and it sits on our tongues and it parches a bit of our thirst, maybe, 
we can reflect on the blood of Jesus. And it reminds not just our brains, but our bodies as well. But it's not just something we do to remember, it's also something we do to proclaim. In 27, we do this to proclaim the Lord's death. What I love about communion isn't just that it forces us to remember the gospel, it also kind of forces me to preach the gospel. Communion doesn't really make sense unless we're talking about the gospel and what Jesus has done, does it? So even if, I, if I've forgotten and done a bad job in, in my sermon and haven't preached the gospel and it comes to communion, well, I've got to preach it real quick because that's what this is about. So communion forces and makes sure that any who are unbelievers here or who haven't heard lately are reminded of the gospel. Another thing the gospel, or that communion does is it unifies us. As it reminds us of the gospel, it also reminds me that I need the gospel and you need the gospel. And you need the gospel. And all of us in here need the gospel. That I'm not better than anyone else here. That all of us are, at the, the ground of the cross is level. All of us need the same amount of salvation. Even though I might think I'm way better than you or you're way worse than me or you fill in the blank wherever that is for you. And so the gospel helps unite us and remind us that all of us are sinners saved by grace who desperately need Jesus. So all of that is a, is a little background, but what's important and significant for us to notice here is it is possible to eat this bread and to drink this cup and to not actually participate in communion and not be celebrating communion at all, to be doing something different. Verse 20, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. So when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper you eat. There are times that you're getting up and someone may even be saying these words and teaching and saying, hey, we're all taking communion now. There you go. And a bunch of you are not actually partaking of communion. So what's happening here is that you, when you have the wrong behavior, when you have the wrong attitude, you in some way are invalidating the ordinance, that you're not actually eating communion. You're just drinking some grape juice and you're eating a wafer. That's all you're doing is what I think Paul is going on. Now, there's, what I also think this tells us is that there is something unique that's happening in communion. Now, all of us come from different, or many of us come from different denominational backgrounds, right? We have some that came from Baptist, Methodist, Presbyterian, Catholic, or, or all over the place. So all of us have different um, ideas or different traditions or different things even that we've been taught about communion. And, you know, communion is not one of the primary doctrines, okay? It's in, we all must believe that we do it and that we take it, but there's, there's room for disagreements on, well, what exactly does it mean? How often should we do it? What exactly should we do? Should we do wine? Should we only do wine? Should we do grape juice? Should we never do wine? All of these things. Okay, so you're allowed to disagree with me a little bit here on what I'm going to say. Now, what I think is that I don't think when we take communion that this wafer and this drink transforms mystically into God's real body and real presence. There are some who believe that because they're taking it very seriously and literally when he says, this is my body. Say, well, says this is my body, so that must be it. It must be. Okay, I don't think that's what's happening. However, I don't think that it's also just symbolic. I don't think that it's just something we do and we take some time to reflect on it and it's just a symbol and it doesn't really matter at all. I think that something significant is happening here. And you can disagree with me on this. You can think it's just a symbol. That's fine. Um, I'm not going to kick you out or get upset. And now if you ask me what is happening, I'm going to say I have no idea. I think it's a mystery. 
but I think that something mysterious and sanctifying is happening here. Because if it's serious enough that some, we could not be doing it, we're actually doing it, then there's something you can do. And as we're going to see a little later, it's serious enough that doing it wrongly leads to being weak and 30 and sick and dying. So if it's just a symbol, it seems to be at least an incredibly important symbol. But I, I think something's going on here. I think in some way that we are nourished not just physically but spiritually as we partake in communion. And I think that proclaiming the gospel and remembering the gospel is not just good for our brains and our souls, but I think when we do it, it somehow spiritually nourishes us. Again, how exactly? I don't know. It's a mystery. But that's, that's what I think. But now what we see is, is what's going on here. And what's going on is they are not doing this correctly. Right? So they have in 21, for, they're not really celebrating communion because in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry and another gets drunk. He says, what? Don't you have houses to eat in or drink in? Why are you despising the church of God or humiliating those who have nothing? So what's happening is that at this point, they wouldn't, the church would not provide really the bread or the wine, but you would also kind of bring it yourself. You'd bring your own communion. So those who are rich would bring lots of food. They'd bring their T-bone steaks. They'd bring a really big bottle of wine. And those who were poor would bring what they had, which was... Not much. And so while the poor are lucky to get some nibbles of bread and maybe someone will let them borrow that and a sip of something else, the rich there are literally, maybe they are literally getting drunk or it's just saying, hey, some people are literally here starving and you are over here gorging yourself on everything that you've brought. And what that is doing is it is despising God and humiliating the poor. You're taking something in communion that's supposed to be unifying and you're dividing the church. You're increasing these divisions. So now, you know, our, our communions, I don't think, can be described quite as a physical feast, right? We don't do that exactly the same way. But how does this apply? What's the spiritual principle here? Well, here's what I, I think it, part of this means. is Sunday morning is not about you. Sunday morning is not about me. It's not about you. It's not about what you want. It's not about what you like. It's really just about Jesus. And if there's something that you desperately want to experience on Sunday morning, like some of the people here really want to experience that T-bone steak and their bottle of wine and that other stuff that they have, okay, that's not about you. You, you do that somewhere else. So Paul says, you go eat in your own home. The stuff you want to do that's about you, you do that elsewhere. And then when you come together on Sunday, this is not about you. This is about Jesus. So what's another way that we can do this? Well, if, if it doesn't feel like worship to you, unless we sing your favorite song, or we sing a song that's fast enough, or the preacher preaches your favorite passage, or in one of your favorite styles, well, you, why don't you go ahead and do that before you come here then? Because you're welcome to. Okay? Sing your favorite song, worship to God and the ones that you want to hear, or listen to a great sermon that's going to be exactly what you want, and then come here. Because what's going on here is not about you or what you want or what I want. It's about God. Our worship isn't about us. It's about Him. And so, so often our attitude is us-centered instead of God-centered. And we are worried about when we leave, well, well, did I get to consume what I wanted this morning? That's how we evaluate it. Oh, worship was great today. Why was it great today? Well, it was my favorite songs. That's why it was great because I loved it. Or all the preaching was great because I, it really taught me something new or I heard something. So that's what made it great. Not well, it's the worship about Jesus. 
the preaching about Jesus? Was it biblical and doctrinal and, and good and honoring to Jesus? Okay, sounds like worship was good today. It doesn't have anything to do with what I thought about it or how I feel. And what happens is when we have this selfish, us-centered attitude towards worship, we really divide God's people. And it, we destroy not just communion, but we harm worship itself. And this is the, the scary part of this part in communion of 29. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. And that's why some of you are weak and ill, and some have died. I was surprised in studying this how many people want to bend over backwards to say, well, that, that can't be what's actually happening here. God couldn't actually be causing people to be sick and bring death if they're not worshiping Him correctly on Sunday. And maybe, maybe it's something else. But no, I, I think that's probably actually it a little bit. So when we partake of communion, particularly in 29, anyone who eats or drinks without discerning or repenting, we're drinking judgment on ourselves. Now, this doesn't mean, I think, that we're definitely going to face sickness or death if we come in here on Sunday and are selfish or didn't wear the right kind of clothes or do what you're we supposed to do. But what this does mean is that we need to prepare ourselves before we come to worship on Sunday. Excuse me. And this is part why some churches will not let anyone who's not a member of their church partake of communion because they're trying to take this verse seriously. They're saying, well, we want to protect you because we know if you don't do this correctly, you're going to be in sin. So when we partake of communion, I say, hey, if you're not a believer in Jesus, please don't do this because it's bad for you. What this also means is that there are some Sundays that come for us, like this morning, this may be true for some of us, as we partake of communion, that you should not do it, that you should stop. Why? Because before we partake in worship and before we do communion, we need to make sure that our own heart is right. If we are filled with pride and anger, if we have been fighting in the parking lot and then we're, okay, we came through the door, so let's pretend everything's good and let's go. No, before you worship, you need to get right with God. You need to repent. You need to apologize. You need to humble yourselves and admit that something's wrong. So I'm saying that, or why the point is that we our proper worship takes preparation is because we should prepare before we come into God's house. Particularly, we should be repenting. That's the important part. And so our, our number three is church about me or, or about Jesus is really the question. Is Sunday about me or about Jesus? And a good, that's a good thing to ask ourselves before we come into these doors. And it's another good thing to ask ourselves after we're in here, because our default setting is to be about ourselves. The person I care about most, most days, is me. Well, because, like Doug said last week, which I thought was funny as well, I live here. So I, I experience myself. I, I only think what I think and feel what I feel. So that's why I care a lot about what I think and what I feel, because that's me. And we run on autopilot. That's what we default to, to being about me, not to being about Jesus. So first, you know, we need to, we need to check our, our own behavior, and we also got to check our attitude. Am I coming into church repentant? Am I coming in here humble? Am I coming in here admitting how much I need Jesus and his gospel? Or am I coming in here thinking, well, you know, this better be how I want this to be today because it's about me and what I want. None of those things aren't important, but is it about me or is it about Jesus? And we have to... We have to be humble and we have to admit that because if the gospel is true, then all of us in this room are sinners 
deserving eternal punishment apart from God in hell for all eternity. That's what we deserve. That's fair. That's justice. That's not wrong. That's the rightest thing that ever could be. But Jesus came and paid the price for us and bore our penalty and our sin and the wrath of God on the cross so that all of us could be delivered and have new life. And not just so we can go to heaven one day, but so that all of our sins can be forgiven and we can be made into new people and united together as a church to worship our God forever, starting right now. So if that is true, we should enter into this room every Sunday repenting, every Sunday acknowledging of all the ways that I've failed since last Sunday. Of all the things that I left thinking, oh, I'm going to do this now, I'm going to do this now, I'm going to read this now, and then we get here and think, oh, wow, I didn't do anything at all. I was way worse than I was last week. All the things we promised we should do in different, that our, our primary attitude every Sunday morning as believers should be one of repentance. It should be one of, of acknowledging the ways that we are sinners and have failed and so desperately need His grace. And so we do that first. And then as we partake of communion, we are reminded of his grace. And that even though we are, are such sinners and so full of all of our rebellion and junk, that he loves us and he forgives us and he has forgiven us. And he washes us by his blood and makes us new. And when we refuse to do that, when we don't prepare, when we don't repent, this is why Paul warns us and says we're drinking judgment on ourselves. If you come in a, on a Sunday morning and, or another day in God's house and, and it's all about you and you don't repent and you're not thinking about the gospel and you're not focused on Jesus, then coming here is actually bad for you. <laughs> not, even if we don't take communion because you're going to hear the gospel preached and you're going to hear more things that you're not applying and not repenting to your life. And so that's, that's worse. Like God tells us in His Word that to those who much is given, much is required, or if you hear more of God's Word and then you don't obey it, that's not a good thing. So that's why our, our continual pattern, our attitude should be one of repenting. That we should be continually repenting all the time, acknowledging how flawed we are, how sinful we are, how rebellious against God we are, how self-centered we are, even as we're singing a song that's not supposed to be about me, but is about Jesus, and I am just thinking about me instead of thinking about Jesus, because I'm not remembering, oh yeah, I'm not singing to myself, I'm supposed to be singing to Jesus. We need to be focused on our repentance and our need for His grace and the fact that He gives it. So we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper in just a few moments, and we're going to have a chance to practice this, just to practice repentance. Communion, I think, gives us a unique chance as before we partake it, as we have silence, to examine our own heart, to examine ourselves, to take some moments where we can repent of our sins and beg for His grace again because we still need it. And whether or not we practice communion every Sunday because we don't every Sunday, we should still do that before we come in here. Or if we get in here and are forgotten, then I invite you to take a seat, take a knee, do whatever you have to do every Sunday to make sure that you repent of your sins 
and throw yourself at the grace of Jesus. I'm going to invite our worship team to, to come up and, and play while we prepare for communion, um, or at least our music. But as I do that, I'm going to close us in prayer. And my prayer is honestly just going to be, I'm going to pray a prayer of repentance for myself and for us. So I'd invite you to pray with me. And then after I pray, as the, the music goes, take some moments and examine yourself. And throw yourself at the grace of Jesus. And if you don't have a, a communion cup already, throw, throw your hand up so somebody can get that for you. Let's pray. Lord, I just um, Lord, I just ask for forgiveness this morning. Lord, I need you. We all desperately need you and your grace. Lord, I, I am such a chief of sinners. How even this morning and coming and preparing and knowing I'm going to preach and ask and hey, is today about you or is today about Jesus? That there are places and, and things that I was just thinking and only focused on myself. Lord, forgive me for my self-centeredness. Lord, forgive me for my pride. Lord, forgive me for the way that I uh, embrace and stoke divisions. Lord, forgive me for the ways that I do not care for the poor. Lord, forgive me for the ways that I don't pray when I should. Lord, forgive me of all the things that I do sinfully and don't care that you think they're wrong. And Lord, would you forgive me for all those things that I do and I don't even acknowledge as sin because I'm so blind. Lord, would you forgive and help us? Would you help me? Lord, repentance is a key part of the Christian life, and often I am not good at it. Would you help us and would you aid us in our repentance this morning? Would you examine our lives for us? Would you reveal things to us that we need to repent of? And Lord, would you just pour out your wondrous grace upon us? Just ask this in your holy and precious name. Praise God that it is well with our souls because of his body and blood that he shed for us. Hear this benediction from Hebrews. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week.